think the suggestion was that we discuss the question of um, laughter. Is that, is that right? Okay, this is a fascinating subject from a Torah perspective and it gives us a chance to examine some principles that we examine and apply some of the principles that we use when we are looking at a subject in Torah. Basic principles that we are using to elucidate, to develop a theme within Torah thinking it's a classic subject that allows us to, <coughs> to do that. Now let's see if we can try and learn the rules and apply them and see what we can understand in this subject. First of all, we have a principle that, again, on these, in, in this forum previously, we have studied some of the themes that relate to, to developing an understanding of some of the deeper areas in, <coughs> in Torah, what we call Mahshava, Ashkafa, whatever you want to call it, the area of Jewish thought, Torah thought. We've tried to go through some of the principles that one uses in order to open up these areas. One of the principles that we need is as follows. When we want to understand something in the spiritual world, we are looking at the equivalent of that thing in the physical world. Right? That's the principle. Let's try and explain it, and then we'll apply it to our subject of the concept of laughter, laughing. The Torah is full of the idea of laughter. Most of it isn't funny at all. <coughs> Quite the opposite, it may seem. But it's not particularly deep that's taught in this, <coughs> in this area. First of all, let's try and understand the principle and we'll use that to open, up, to open up the area. The principle is that the spiritual world <coughs> is a world of abstraction. In other words, we don't have a, a tool that can directly grasp or apprehend that world. We have the tools that are required to deal with and grasp the physical world, but we don't have the tools, we don't have a sense or faculty that can grasp the spiritual world directly. The only way we can grasp anything in the spiritual realm, which is of course what we're trying to do, that's what we're here for. We're not here to live in the physical realm. That's not the point of, of being a human being, and certainly not the point of being a Jew. And it's certainly not the point of being a human being or a Jew who needs to discover one's own uniqueness. In order to discover spirituality, any aspect of the spiritual world, in order to relate to anything deep in Torah, we are required to look into the physical dimension because it's the only place that we can make direct contact with any aspect of the world or that which transcends it. Let's take an example that makes this clear <coughs> and then try to, try to apply it. If the principle is not clear, then we won't be able to, certainly can't move on to application. Let's take a classic example. I'm choosing this example because this is the place where the message is taught most potently and this example not only illustrates the, the principle but it actually teaches its application as well. When you want to relate to a person relationship, relationship with a human being whether it's marriage 
perhaps in its most powerful form, or relationship in general between two people. Marriage is the classic example and perhaps shows it most beautifully. What you're looking for in this relationship is the ability to connect with a person themselves. You want to relate to and discover and engage the person inside the body of the, yes, that, that you're dealing with. What we call the neshama, the soul. Call it the personality or whatever you want to call it. It's not, but there's something inside the vehicle of the body which is what we're looking for. We're not looking for the body. Animals are looking for a bodily experience. They don't know more than that. We're not looking for a body. We're looking for the, for that, the human being that the body carries around or that the body serves as the vehicle for. This human being inside is the entity that you wish to make connection with. But you never can make connection with a human being. You never see a person. You never see the person. All you can ever see is the body. I mean, we forget this. We, we're so used to using the body as the avenue of access to the person that when we look at the person, when we look at the body, we think we're looking at them, but you're not. Again, again, no matter how well you know someone, no matter how close you are, no matter how long you've lived together in marriage, you never see the person themselves. All you ever see is the body that carries them around. But that's not what you want. Again, we're not talking about this fallen generation. We're talking about people who still have a vestige of human depth left. That, that, that small, very small percentage of the Earth's population that still remembers that inside the body of a human being, there's a human being. Not just an animal. We're not talking about the sum total of instincts and animalistic issues and drives. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the person inside. Even the concept of personality would be good enough to demonstrate this, but we're talking about a lot more than that. But you never see the personality, you never see the soul, you never see the essence of the person, that which leaves after a person dies. That element that makes a person different one minute before they die and one minute after they die, whatever that is, but that's the person. Call it whatever you want, you believe in the spiritual world, you don't believe, whatever, it, whatever that thing is, without going to discussion now of the different parts and manifestations of the soul. That thing that animates the body, that thing that's there when a person's alive and not there when they've died. That thing you never see. Is it, are we together? It's going to be a long night. Yes? Good. How do you make contact with that person inside? The remarkable thing is that you do it through the body. When you want to know what the experience is, what the person inside that body is experiencing, the only way you can access it is through the body. Speech happens to be the most explicit and detailed, usually in most circumstances, most classically, speech happens to be the most, the closest or the clearest application. Because speech is the least physical manifestation. In speech all you're doing is taking, you're putting into physical clothing only words, a very, very little physicality. And in those few, in that, in that, in that rarefied physicality, which is just the sound waves, you can put a tremendous subtlety of expression. Right? You've chosen words chosen carefully, although they're very clumsy compared to knowledge of the subject itself. But nevertheless, they can be very subtle and full with tremendous meaning. The truth is that you don't understand a person because of the words. You understand a person despite the words that they use. But that's another subject for another time. You see that the meaning in the words bears the same relationship to our subject as the soul inside the body. Can you see that? The words themselves are also only bits of physicality, they're bits of sound. But there's a spirit or a soul inside those words, which is the meaning that the words carry, even though the words do an inadequate job. Are we together? But nevertheless, words are the best example. 
But the truth is that any aspect of the body, when you, when you share a very deep and, 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 and very important moment in a relationship with someone, you, you do something or say something and you see a change of expression on their face, it could be the very subtlest change, just a small change of expression, just a subtle difference in the look on their face. But that shows you that they understood what you meant, and from that moment on your relationship is never the same again. A remarkable thing, a lifetime of change and meaning in a relationship took, pl- took place based entirely on the silliest flicker of twitching of a few muscles. Is, uh, is this clear? But it's good enough. It's good enough. It's good enough to give you a very deep sense of what happened inside. And it gives you such a deep sense that you actually feel that you know that person, even though you never saw the person, you only saw their face. When a bodily action occurs. Now, let's say you need something very badly and a lot depends on it. And the person gives you the thing. The physical experience is nothing. The physical experience is a hand moving through space with an object. An animal can do that. A machine can do that. But you understand that when that thing happens, it says something very deep about the nature of the person inside. You have a tremendous and far-reaching effect. And what's absurd about this <coughs> is that the transmission of this soul experience takes place only by and through the body. That's the idea. That's the idea. Movements of the body. The Talmud Talmud says that you can tell who a man is by the way he walks, let alone dance, let alone the expressions of the face, and the the, the sound and the quality and the choice of words. But they're all expressions of a body. So, we have a principle. The principle is that when you, went, when you wish to get to that which is most spiritually important, and a human being is a classic example, the only avenue of access you have is the body. <coughs> What's unique about the example of a person, as opposed to other aspects of the world? <coughs> What's unique about a person is that you do it naturally. If you wish to see the divine soul, the spiritual depth in a tree, for example, you cannot do that naturally. No matter how long you meditate upon a tree, you won't see clearly a spiritual essence behind the tree. It takes a lifetime of work to be able to see any of that. <clears throat> but with a person, it happens naturally. <clears throat> In fact, if you forget yourself and don't think about the process, all you experience, all that you experience when you're relating to somebody very deeply, in fact, is the person, and you forget the body entirely. You forget the body entirely. In fact, after a while, after you know a person well, it's remarkable what changes even the body can go through that people don't even notice. Remarkable thing. You're not looking at the body. You're using the body as a tool, a screen if you like. You're looking at the body as a screen on which is projected signs of what the soul inside is going through. And you do it so well and so automatically. It's such a natural gift that you switch in automatically from this very, very frail and flimsy projection on a screen which we call a body, you switch in naturally into the person inside. The reason for that, the reason for that, is that we have another axiom, and that's part of the main theme that we need to develop this evening, and that is that every spiritual element that the world contains, everything that you require to relate to, that we are required to relate to spiritually, we're given the gift of one place, one area of our experience at least, where that thing happens naturally. You want to relate to that which is happening in the spiritual world. It would be ridiculous to ask us to do that if we had no, if we had no tangible example. If Hashem wanted us to relate, for example, to uh, death, for example. What, is, what does it mean to be dead? 
So sleep. Sleep has a 60th of the death experience, whatever that means. Prophecy, what is that? A dream has a little bit of that. This world and the next world. Shabbos teaches an aspect of the next world. He gives an example, and many other examples. He gives an example of something from which you can learn about that existence. You know the experiences of going through the week and then entering Shabbos? It's the experience of building and working and developing and then being left with the work that you did without being able to do anything else. You practice that every week. You begin to get a bit of a concept of what it must be like to work and labor for a lifetime and then be left without being able to do anything but coasting on passively on the work that you did previously. Remarkable lesson. You can take. That's why it says that Shabbos is one sixtieth of the world to come. <coughs> or sleep is a sixtieth of death. Or a dream is a sixtieth of... Why one in sixty? What does that proportion mean? <coughs> but anybody who knows any Torah will know that one in sixty is always the borderline of taste. One in sixty, if you have a drop of milk that falls into a meat stew, if there's less than one in sixty, then it's edible, it's kosher. Reason is you cannot taste it. More than one in sixty is the borderline that taste can discern. What a fantastic idea. It means that if you live Shabbos correctly, it's on the borderline of that which can be tasted. If you do it correctly, you can taste the next world. If you don't do it correctly, you won't taste the next world. It has the potential to be tasted. It's a remarkable thing. That's, that's what you're being told here. Why do we need to be told about the, the, what percentage it is? And why do they bring a percentage that's classically used in halacha by the areas where taste can be discerned? Beautiful. Because you're supposed to discern the taste of the next world here. That's what's going on. You live Shabbos correctly, you can taste it. Why? Because how could you possibly be expected to relate to the next world if it didn't give you a tangible example? Good, practice Shabbos. You'll, know, you'll begin to have a taste of what's going on. A human being is that example where you learn to, to, to perceive and engage a neshama by means of relating to a body. It's an incredible absurdity. The Kuzari says that it's absolutely absurd. Especially in marriage where this comes to a sharper focus, into sharper focus. That's where he says it's really absurd. But it's the experience of knowing who a person is, really knowing who they are, through the experience of the body. That's a remarkable and absurd thing. If you take it further, you'll realize that all of life is really that. All of life. Torah and mitzvahs, for example. You know what mitzvahs are? You know what a mitzvah is? A mitzvah is a physical action that puts you in touch with the spiritual world. Virtually all the mitzvahs are physical. There are virtually no mitzvahs. You can probably count them on one hand. The mitzvahs that are done in, in thought or, or attitude, for example. Even those have practical application. But the mitzvahs are virtually all. Of all the hundreds and hundreds of mitzvahs, virtually all of them are actions. Why is that? If you design a spiritual system, surely you should design something that has to do with meditation or spiritual effort. You design a spiritual system and the way people grow within the spiritual system is by doing actions. You've got to eat this now and you've got to take this in your hand and shake it and you've got to put your body here and put your body there. That's what it is. That's the way you have access to the spiritual world. The only way you have access to the spiritual world, the only way you have access to reading the spiritual world is by reading the physical. The only way you have access to manipulating the spiritual world is by manipulating the physical. It's a remarkable thing. When you do a mitzvah, you're moving something around here in the physical world and you're making a difference in the spiritual world. It's a remarkable thing. The thing that you're moving is worthless. Eventually it will disintegrate. It's almost useless. But while you have it, it's the only avenue. I once had a wonderful... Rabbi who said that a mitzvah, it's like, the physical world is like playing the keys on the piano. When you play the keys, the music happens. And the uninitiated think that the keys make the music. Keys don't make the music. The keys connected to a lever, connected to a spring, connected to a... That the music happens deep inside the mechanism. It's got nothing to do... The key that you press not making the music. It's a long, distant connection. But it will not happen unless you press the key. 
When you make an action with a body, there's a long chain reaction that reaches up into the spiritual world that makes a difference and brings down a different dispensation to the physical world. But that change in the spiritual world will not happen unless you do the body. Even though the body itself relatively, an image I have in my mind, <coughs> I don't know if it works for you, an image I have in my mind is those old cars that they used to start with a crank handle. That's how it used to be in the days, not the old days, when you, you had a car, you had a, a handle like this, you put it into the front of the engine, you cranked it up. When the engine was going, you took out the handle. The body's like that handle. It's worth nothing. It's a, a, it's a few cents worth of nothing. And once the engine's running, you can discard it. That's how the body is. It's that which you move, which moves the real engine, the real depth, which is the neshama. But it's essential. It's essential. You couldn't get that engine going without That's what the body is. And therefore, the message is that in order to study the spiritual world and in order to interact with the spiritual world, the only tool that you have, the only interface that we have is the physical world. The keys on the piano, the human body, human speech, <laughs> whichever it is, we are interfacing with spirituality both by reading it and apprehending what its meaning is and by interacting with it and manipulating it, we do only through the physical. That's part one of our, of our discussion. So far, so good. It's a fundamental idea, fundamental idea, fundamental idea, unique idea in Jewish thinking that we interact with the spiritual specifically through the physical. It's why Jewish life is so richly physical. Right? To be a Jew, you have to engage all aspects of physicality. We don't transcend the physical and leave it behind and not engage it and become celibates and ascetics. We don't do that. We use all of physicality. One of, one of the things the Talmud says you get asked in the next world is why you didn't enjoy every particular physical pleasure or experience that this world has to offer. Why? Because we're looking for physical pleasure. No, because the only access to spirituality is through those mechanisms, those actions that exist within the physical. That's the importance of the physical world. Right? For all its lowliness and its temporal nature and its, uh, its finite limitation, it's the, it's the tool and the interface that takes us into the spiritual world. <coughs> Let's take step two. Step two is this. Anything spiritual that we require to relate to, we have a physical example. And the reverse is true as well. Every physical experience here teaches us something about a spiritual experience. How? Simply examine the physical experience. That's all you have to do. Just be objective. You don't have to look in the Torah even if you're objective enough. Look at the physical phenomenon and you'll know the spiritual source. Why? Because the one is a projection of the other. If you want to know what the music is, you don't have to look inside and handle the mechanism. Hit the key. Music will happen. Do you have to understand what the linkage is? Not necessarily. You want to understand something that's happening in the mechanism? Look on the screen. You want to understand a spiritual issue? Look at the physical component that's the equivalent of that thing. And you'll know what it is. Can you see it directly? No. Does that matter? No. Why? Because if you switch it incorrectly, you want to know who, who this human being is whom you've married. You want to know this person in intimately and intensely, and, and, and you're, how can, but you never can see them. Watch the body. Listen to the words that the mouth is saying. Watch the expressions on the face. Watch the body. Are you seeing them? No. Does it give you a deep knowledge of who they are? Yes. Therefore, you want to know a spiritual experience? You study the projection of that thing into the physical world. Now, how do you get to know the, de the depth and nature of that spiritual thing? You examine the depth and nature and specifics of the physical thing. Is it logical? That's what you do. You describe it accurately. You take a completely objective, accurate description of the physical thing that you're looking at. 
and you'll know exactly and objectively and clearly the nature of the spiritual source. <coughs> now, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's apply it to us. Again, there's a wonderful principle that applies throughout this whole area. <coughs> let's try and apply it to one subject for this evening and see if we can become wiser. If everything in the physical world is a reflection or projection of something in the spiritual world, what is laughter? What's laughter? Why do we laugh? What's the meaning of laughter? Laughter, unique human experience, and animals don't do much of that. Remarkable. So if you look in the textbooks, I suppose they explain to you that uh, life without laughter was dangerous, or you, know, you needed it for survival somewhere in the millions of years during which we bumped into each other in the trees. Now those gorillas who learned how to giggle, you know, somehow they survive, but I don't know what they say, it does something to your hormones, I, I don't know. <coughs> but of course that's not, <coughs> that's purely fanciful, that's not the concept. What exactly is laughter? Why is it a uniquely human experience? Why does it have the nature that it does? Why is it uniquely human? Why when you laugh does it, why, why, again, laughter is a remarkable thing. We're so unobjective about the world, we don't even know how to study things, we don't, we don't even notice. We don't even notice. Laughter is an incredible phenomenon. It should stimulate tremendous wonder. Why, does, why do people do this? And why does laughter that we do have strange components that it does? <laughs> One of the unique things about laughter is that it generates pleasure. Or the pleasure, there's a pleasure combined. When you laugh, there's a physical expression of laughter, and there's a pleasure that goes with it. Don't laugh in pain. Why? Why? Let's try, let's try and apply the rules that we've learned this evening. All, we intend, all, all, all we're going to do now, we're going to examine the phenomenon of laughter objectively. Hopefully we'll be able to identify it accurately and dissect it accurately and describe it objectively and accurately. And if we've done that, we should be able to find its parallel. Right, let's try and do that. <coughs> Are we all together on the methodology that we're using? What is laughter? If you think about it, you'll realize that the essence of laughter is something that isn't funny at all. It is, if you characterize it accurately, you'll see that the events that make you laugh, the things that make you laugh, are where one reality is juxtaposed with another one. Two things are put side by side where there's a very, very sharp and unexpected contrast between the two. Is this correct? The more sudden the change... And the sharper the contrast, the more the laughter that's generated. But even though there's nothing intrinsically funny here, something's going in one direction, and it's going very strongly and clearly and inexorably in one direction, and suddenly it gets changed into the opposite direction at the least possible moment, at the least predictable moment, at the most impossible moment, and it gets changed into its exact opposite that it never could have been. That makes you laugh. Is this correct? And people who, professional, people who are professionals, who, who know how to make people laugh, that's what they do. They exploit, that's, they, they draw a situation that goes in one direction, <coughs> and they exploit the fact, <coughs> yeah, they, 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 what they do is, they make a change rapidly into its opposite, as sharply opposite and as quickly as possible, at the least expected moment, that's what makes you laugh. Incidentally, the laughter is more... The laughter is more where there's an irony as well. Which means, it, all this is a remarkable thing to understand. Where things going in one direction and it's about to flip into its opposite, but you don't know that. That means the person going through it doesn't know, but you know. It's very funny. It's even funny the whole way before it even happens. It's funny. It isn't funny. 
He's laughing already. <laughs> you see, here's this very tall and conceited individual. Right? Very, very self-inflated, self-important individual striding down the road in full view of everybody. And, and at the least, at the b- b- worst possible moment, he slips on a banana peel and falls flat on the pavement. Now, if you smile at a thing like that, there's something psychologically wrong with you. There's nothing funny about that. In fact, even as you run to lend a hand, you, you can't hide a smile. Why? What's funny about that? It's not funny. That's painful. But there's something so ridiculous. There's something so ridiculous in one situation being so rapidly reversed into its opposite. Well, here's this person who has to give some you know, very formal presentation. And the whole thing depends on his, on his dignity. And he strides into full view of everybody doing this. But he doesn't know that a little child has pinned a bushy tail to the back of his suit. So as he's striding around with all this dignity, the tail is wagging like... What's funny about that? What could be sillier or more infantile or more ridiculous? But it's hysterical. It could be a hysterical experience. Now why? That takes thought. Why? Why are we built that way? Why are we built in such a way? Why are we built in such a way that when we see a thing like that, we have a welling up of incredible pleasure. <laughs> incredible pleasure and laughter bursts forth. What's going on? What is going on? And especially if he doesn't know about it, but you do, then it's really funny. And especially as you see the moment of switch, what's going on? What does this mean? Let's see if we can try and... Of course, you realize it's not funny for the one who goes through the experience. That person fails to see the humor entirely. Even if you try and explain. But look, don't you see how funny this is? Probably start weeping. Try and explain the humor to one who just went through that humiliating experience. Not funny at all. Let's try and understand. The principle is this. Incredible though it may seem, laughter is the experience of the soul to the transition from this world to the next. What we call death, from the spiritual point of view, is the funniest experience imaginable. Right? Again. Again. See, this world is the exact opposite of the spiritual world. And this world looks like it goes in one direction, like it disintegrates, like it all ends in death. That's this, world, this world doesn't look happy or humorous at all, if you understand what's really going on around you. And when it finally comes to an end and there's no more, no more hope at all, and the end of a life is reached, and everything that could possibly maybe have been, has now been dashed entirely, and even the vehicle that you inhabited, that the person inhabited, is now disintegrating in the most unpleasant and bizarre, you're talking about the body rotting, this, this vehicle that once housed the Nishama, I mean, it's a bizarre and absolutely gruesome nothing could be more terrifying and, 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 and gruesome but from the perspective of the soul that just went through this absolute disaster which now enters a real, which is reality that makes this look like nothing, on the contrary that gives meaning to this thing that an absolutely spiritually hysterical experience that is so funny there are no words to describe it, of course it doesn't look funny from here doesn't look funny from here. You have to be there to see it. Let's try and understand this. You know that even if you read, I hesitate to say, especially with the tape recorders. <coughs> well, 
you shouldn't read that material, but there are, there, there are, there are spiritual teachings on earth other than Judaism. Let's not credit any now with any names or go into details. Where they talk about very highly evolved spiritual people as being laughing people. And that certain sects that talk about the laughing man. Yes, a universal wisdom. This, right? that, that life understood correctly. That the spiritual vision of life understood correctly what this all means and where it's going. That, that is what real laughter is. We pick it up in our emotional reflection of this. In the, in, the, in the very, very shrunken and childish version of a situation turning into its opposite on a human emotional scale. But it's teaching you about the meaning of life. That's what it's doing. When you laugh, every time something happens and flips itself into its opposite, now in that ridiculous fashion, and you burst out laughing, if you only realize what you're going through, you're being taught here the transition from this world to the next. Let's try and understand this. Let's follow it through. Of course, not only that, but you're being taught the deliverance from ordeals in general. This, this world is one big ordeal. And the next world is the, is the delivery, deliverance. It's the, uh, the redemption from this ordeal. And the bigger the ordeal and the more gruesome and the greater the horror, the funnier the experience is. First of all, you know, let's try and, let's try and study this, let's try and work it out. You know that we say that women, woman has a special access to this. You know what that means? That a woman of spiritual death, a woman is correctly prepared spiritually, she laughs at the day of death. Can you imagine saying such a thing? Again, you have to be very careful. The one who's going through the experience isn't laughing at all. This is a person who is so sublimely prepared that they're not going through the experience. They're so objective that they're watching it happen. But imagine saying a woman of greatness, Ashes Chayel, somebody who's correctly prepared, she has a correct spiritual vision. At the day of death, she laughs. It says, "Az pinu." Then, after the redemption in the next world, in the messianic age, our mouth shall be filled with laughter. Not accidental. People think, people think it means well. You can't laugh now because the world has sadness and there's sorrow and people suffering, psychological suffering, physical suffering. Then we'll be laughing because it's all over. Don't be laughing. Excuse me, when a very bad experience happens and it's over, you don't laugh. You breathe a sigh of relief. That's what you do. In fact, sometimes you cry. That's what happens. In fact, it says in the Mashiach comes, people will cry as well. They'll be crying and laughing. You ever seen two people meet each other after they've been separated for 20 years? Who never thought they'd see each other again? They're separated by some bizarre military or political situation. Or they thought each other was dead. These two brothers or sisters or whatever. What happens when they meet each other after all those years? An incredible moment of joy. You know what happens? They start weeping. That's what happens. Start crying. They start laughing. They laugh and cry together. It's ridiculous. That needs explanation also. What are you crying about? It's a happy time now. Why do you cry? Why do people cry when they... Oh, that's next week's year. Some other time we'll have to talk about it. That's another subject. <coughs> Why do people cry? You know what they're crying for? They're crying for all the years of pain. That's what happens. It all comes out now. That's something else. Let's deal with laughter first. As then our mouth shall be filled with laughter. Because in this world of sadness and agony, you, your mouth cannot be filled with laughter. The laughter then will not be because this world's over. The laughter will be because then you'll see the humor of the situation, how this could become that. So, the halacha is in fact that you may not laugh fully in this world. You know that? A Jew is not allowed to laugh fully in this world. Not allowed. 
It's not appropriate to laugh fully in a world that is so full of suffering. You can laugh in this world, of course you have to. You couldn't maintain your sanity if you didn't, you have to laugh. But absolutely full of laughter with no faintest hint of, yeah, when we get married even we break something to remember the destruction, we have some ashes on our forehead. And we're always remembering the sadness in the moment of joy. You can't have a completely full mouth of laughter, but in the next world your mouth will be full with laughter. Not just because this world's over, but because this world became that world which is, which is, which is indescribably funny. And that's why, and that's why we say, You know why it's a woman? Why is it a woman who laughs? Why a woman? Why doesn't the Torah describe a man like that? Why is it unique to her? And why do we sing that on Friday night? Jewish people, they stand up and they start singing about this woman of greatness. And on Friday night, the sun's just gone down. Friday night, when the sun goes down, is a transition from the week to Shabbos. That's the moment of transition. It's the moment of birth, really. It's the moment of the next world being born. That's the meaning of the week becoming Shabbos. The week moving into Shabbos is a representation, like we said, of this world moving into the next. So that is the moment of birth, and that's a woman's moment. So <coughs> that's what we say at that moment. <coughs> Woman is the creature of birth. It's not only giving birth to children, it's birth to a relationship that only she knows how to do. It's birth to the redemption of the Jewish people. And so it says that every redemption we've ever had was due to Jewish women, not to men. There's a woman who did it at Hanukkah, it was Yehudis, we're coming up to Hanukkah now, it was a woman who caused the redemption. At Purim it was Esther. In Mitzrayim, that, that prototype of the anguish of exile of the Jewish people, it was the Jewish women, the men collapsed, the women managed. There's a, there's a special power in women to bring us through from what looks like the inevitable and inexorable process of destruction, and to turn that into redemption. Let's try and follow this through. The usual example, I have to share with you an example. The usual example that's given in the sources that talk about this is the experience of birth, where the woman goes through what looks like the opposite experience. If you stumbled upon a woman in labor, you wouldn't think that it was a life-giving experience. Right? It looks exactly the opposite. It looks exactly the opposite. But it's the difficulty that she's going through which is what produces the result. In fact, it's the, pain them, it's the pains themselves that appreciate this. It's not just that it happens to be painful. The pains themselves are what produce the result, if you know what labor is all about. Remarkable thing. That's the usual example, and that's why the Messianic age is always expressed as a, a labor process, right, where there'll be an experience of difficulty. The Midrashim talk about a showdown between all the Western nations, including the Arabs, attacking the Jewish people in a, in a way that looks completely and utterly hopeless, and, and it will get worse before it gets better, and there will be a moment of seeming redemption which will then crash into the biggest disappointment imaginable, beyond what's imaginable, and only through having gone through all that will the redemption occur. And that's exactly what it is. The pain itself will squeeze and bring about the, the redemption. But I'd like to share with you the, this experience from another perspective, <coughs> and that is not so much the woman going through the experience, but the child. Stay with me. Let's try to, to understand this. The classic source for this is the Rambam. The Rambam was once approached by a group of philosophers. Stay with me carefully. It's fascinating, fascinating issues and fascinating theme. 
a group of neo-Greek not philosophers is exactly appropriate time of year to discuss this. They approached the Rambam and they said to him, you Jews are wicked. You Jews base yourselves on a doctrine and you teach the world that death leads to life. That's after all what all of Judaism is, right? That, that end and that, that disintegration that we call death, that in fact is a birth. So you Jews teach that death leads to life. That's what you teach. Your whole religion is founded on that. You live for the next world. The resurrection, it's one of the 13 principles, etc. You teach that death leads to life. But the problem we have is that when you examine the world, you see that life leads to death, not the other way around. You have no evidence for this. You Jews are foisting upon the world a trumped up and falsified doctrine that has no, that has no observational backing. There's no evidence. Again, you say that things that die live. Right? Death leads to life. But look at the whole world. There's nothing in the world that does that. Everything in the world that's alive dies. That's all we see. We never see the opposite. Step two. And not only that, but you have the chutzpah, you Jews, you have the frontry to tell us that the way we learn about spiritual reality is by observing the physical. Isn't that what you say? Isn't that what we said this evening? So let's apply your methodology. Let's go. You don't tell us to believe you know, with faith. You, don't. you say, look at the world. And the world, you can extrapolate from the physical experiences in the world, you can extrapolate to the spiritual meaning. That's what you base yourselves on. You say that the world is a true reflection of its spiritual meaning. So let's do that. Let's go and look at the world and see if we see death lead to life. We don't see it. On the contrary, when we examine the world, we see life lead to death. And you come along and tell us that death leads to life? That it's a really humorous change? That at the end it all flips itself into its reverse? And everything that looks like disintegration and death is actually a birth and... What are you talking about? Where do you see that? Where do you, where do you get that from? Very nice idea, but con- completely contradicts the principle of seeing the evidence. And that's an interesting, <coughs> that's an interesting question. Right? That's, a <coughs> that's a serious question. That wasn't just an attack. That's a serious ideological and philosophical question. After all, that is Judaism. We teach that death leads to life. And after all, that is Judaism. We say that you can learn the spiritual from the physical. Those principles clash. Let's go look at the physical. We see life leads to death. <coughs> Very good question. The Ramam answered them as follows. Stay with me carefully. As it happens, the Ramam was a doctor, but that's not... Uh, didn't, them, didn't get this knowledge from there. The Talmud itself says that when a child is born... Let's forget the experience of the mother. Let's go through the experience of the child now. When a child is born... The Gemara says, the Talmud says, that what's open closes and what's closed opens. Within the child's body, that which is closed opens and that which is open closes. So the Gemara says, <coughs> what does it mean? What does it mean? Without going into too much anatomy and physiology, just a very brief description, you, you should know that in the unborn child inside the mother, the child has features of its anatomy that are exactly the opposite of the features that you have once you're born. It's important to understand. Not just different, but opposite. First of all, you know the unborn child has a hole, at least one, (coughs) between the two sides of his heart. He has a hole in his heart. (coughs) He has lungs that cannot function. Not only can't they function, they they are completely, they're scrunched, they're completely closed. They can't, he lives underwater. Even if his lungs were functioning, he's living underwater. Not only is there a hole in his heart, which is reversing the blood flow, 
But the blood that comes out of his heart, that in you goes to your lungs, in a child it doesn't go to the lungs at all. Not only that, which means his lungs aren't functional, even if, it, even if they were, they couldn't function because there's no air, they're underwater. And even if they could, there's no blood going there to be oxygenated. So the blood bypasses that avenue and it takes completely... Oh, he's bleeding out of his umbilicus. This child has blood vessels pumping blood out of his umbilicus to this, reversing the flow right through there. You don't have that. And it goes on and on. You examine it, uh, the, new, the unborn child has a different kind of blood cells than you do, <coughs> etc. But what's unique about all these observations is not just that they're different than in an adult, they're opposite. You know what opposite means? In the deeper sense. Each of those features that the child has is absolutely necessary for his survival. He needs each of those features in order to survive. If you gave him any of the features that you have, you'd kill him. And you know what happens to a person who's born in the world? All the features that you have, you need to survive. And if you gave any one of us any of the features that the child has, you'd, ki- you'd kill, kill the person. Again, you understand? The unborn child has a whole set of physiological, anatomical features. They're all necessary for survival. The child born has the opposite set, and they're all necessary for survival. Completely opposite. If you gave any of these there, if you, if you opened that blood vessel to the lungs, or you made him dependent on air, or you cut off the blood that's going out of his umbilicus, or you closed the holes in his heart, you'd kill him. He needs all of those. And conversely, all the things that you have, which are exactly the opposite, you need. If you gave a person alive a hole in the heart, or you closed down the blood supply to their lungs, you'd kill him instantly. <laughs> so what's, just think about what's happening here. <laughs> you have a child perfectly adapted to survival in one environment, <coughs> And he's going to be thrust out into an environment where each one of those means death. But instantly. That's what it means. You know, the Gesher Achaim, the famous work on transition from this world to the next. Yeah, work. In one of the sections there, he describes the spiritual component. And he has a famous, a classic analogy of a child being born when a twin is left behind. And there are two twins in the womb who appreciate the situation. I mean, the situation of a child in the womb is idyllic. And as they're perfectly adapted in this incredible nurturing environment, one begins to be born and the other one starts to mourn for his death because it's inevitable that he must die. He's being thrust out into a world where he has none of the features that he needs to survive. And not only that, he's got all the opposite features, which means, (laughs) again, he's not only going to a place where he doesn't have what he needs, he's going to a place where everything that he has will kill him many times over. (coughs) But he doesn't know. The twin inside doesn't know what's going to be there outside of what kind of world the twin's going to. So he starts mourning. Then if Geshachim says, that's when we put someone into the ground and we stand at the graveside and we're weeping. Do you know where that person's going now? You're a twin that's left behind. You're, you're weeping your eyes out. But you know what's being born? You don't know what's being born. You can't see it. So listen to what happens to this child. The child goes from this environment and suddenly is thrust out into the opposite environment with a tremendous pain. And an experience that looks like two people are dying. Never, never mind. But the child, no question. What happens as soon as the child's born? I can tell you as a doctor. You know what happens when you deliver a child? You stand, you hold the child for a few seconds in your hands. You actually witness the child begin to die. You know that the child goes a deep purple, tries to take breaths which it can't. I mean, you're looking at a little creature, okay? A newborn little child being thrust out into the world. He's got exactly what, he's going to die within seconds. The child can survive for a few minutes. He can survive for a few minutes longer than an adult. Eh? But uh, talk about a few minutes. And as you, as you, if you put your stethoscope on the child's chest, you can hear it all going wrong. You can, it's all wrong. It's all reversed. He's got 
any number of features you care to name that are absolute instant death guaranteed. If you came across an adult and you had any of those features, then you know the person seconds away from death. <coughs> what happens? <coughs> you stand there helplessly, the child starts to go purple. And suddenly, all of those things reverse themselves. At exactly the same time within minutes. You know what happens? The child suddenly takes a breath. As he takes a breath and the air hits his lungs, the, un- the lungs pop open. At exactly the same moment, the blood vessel, the, the area that was closed before, that had now suddenly pops open. It's a massive blood vessel. He's talking about one of the biggest blood vessels in the body. Suddenly appears. <laughs> suddenly pops open. All the blood that needs to go to the lungs hits the lungs at exactly the same time that he takes his first breath. At the same time, the hole in his heart closes. The blood flow reverses itself. It's now going the right way. All the blood that's now going the right way that's getting pumped out of his umbilicus is bleeding to death, this child. <coughs> you know, he's got major blood vessels in the umbilicus. His entire blood supply is going through. You know how much blood volume a newborn child has? An average newborn baby has about uh, less than 300 cc's of blood. Like a coffee mug full, that's all. That's all. It takes a few seconds to bleed out to death, that's all. And the placenta is being torn away from the, from the, from the wall of the uterus. Child's but as he begins to pump all this blood out to a certain death, as you hold the cord in your hands, it suddenly clamps down like a vice. It becomes like a cord of steel. Completely stops the bleeding. Huh? All this happens in the first few minutes, and three minutes later, he's doing fine. Absolutely fine. Alive, perfectly adapted to the world, and you can't even see the things that were there before. What do you have? You have a situation. <coughs> you understand what's happening? You have a situation that moves in one direction. It's absolutely inevitable. If you know anything about anatomy or physiology, you know anything about engineering, you don't even have to know anything. You've got a guaranteed situation. And not only do they all have to change, they all have to change at the same time. You've got seconds. I mean, then they come along and tell you that it all happened accidentally. It doesn't happen accidentally. You know, we were gorillas in the trees. We didn't have any of this, you understand. That must have taken a good few, good few years. To get right. No? That's what it is. Is that the logical engineering solution to the problem of how, how, human, how a creature should get born? Is that logical? <laughs> it's not logical. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's extreme. You, you're asking for a set of variables to change themselves into the opposite at a critical moment instantaneously and in perfect coordination. When what chance is there? And absolutely clockwork. That's... So Ramam said, so you see, you have evidence in the world, and you know where the evidence is? It's in the very place of birth. It's exactly where you want it. No? What do you mean the world doesn't show you a transition from one situation to its opposite? What do you mean the world doesn't show you a situation or a process going inexorably to a dis- situation of destruction, and at the last, least, most impossible moment, it suddenly entirely reverses itself, and all those very things that... And where would you like to see the evidence? <laughs> you... <laughs> The whole model of going from this world to the next is the, is, is the coming from the previous world into this one. That's exactly where it is. And that's exactly where the evidence is. Open your eyes. Look at it. I think the way he put it to him, if I'm not mistaken, was he said uh, a poignant and such a beautiful way to say it <coughs> is that uh, <coughs> if you found a human being who'd never had any contact with human beings before, somebody who grew up in the forest, never had any experience of, a, of human beings, and uh, assume he's an intelligent person that you can communicate somehow. Let's not get into the details. And you stumble upon this person in the forest and you say to him, how did you come to be? So you come up with some theory. I don't know what he'd say. And you'd say, well, how did you come to be in the world? 
what, what theory would a person come up with to explain how they arrived in the world? I don't know what they come up with. Then you say, no, that's not how. You know what happened? You were once inside the body of another person. And you were living underwater. You had no lungs. You had no blood. And you start describing what would it... The person will think you're raving. Totally raving. The person will say, you, you're off your head. Absolutely off your head. And then you, after you've got through this whole lengthy description, you say, of course it all means absolute instant death guaranteed. But then there came a critical moment. And you know what happened? They all suddenly reversed... Person probably run off howling, but they'd be wrong. Remarkable thing. That's how it happens. That is what he told them, and that's our concept. If you appreciate what's going on, that is funny. That's funny. That is a. a, a you know the Jewish people are named for laughter. You know that. The first Jewish child ever born is called Yitzchak. Yitzchak means he shall laugh. Notice it means he shall laugh. It doesn't mean he's laughing now. Jewish people haven't been laughing through any part of history. <coughs> Nobody said it's funny now. As the process moves towards a birth, <coughs> it's not funny at all. It's difficult and it gets worse. And then it becomes a crisis. But Yitzchak, he shall laugh. That's what faith means. It means, as pino, then our mouth shall be filled with laughter. That's Yitzchak. And you know what Yitzchak means? It's so, it's so, again, once you, once, you, once you understand the theme, you understand the principle, it's so obvious. You know how Yitzchak was born? His father was too old. His mother was too old. She had no womb. Not ain't love blood. The Gemara says ain't love base blood. She had no womb. You, you, however many reasons you want that a couple couldn't have children, they couldn't have any children. And then Hashem came and said, you're going to have a child. So they laughed. <laughs> because isn't that, it's, it's ridiculous. But spiritual laughter, we're talking about correct laughter, we're not talking about the laughter of, of, of foolish disbelief. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the correct laughter. But We're talking about yeah, the appreciation of an impossibility that looks the impossible and becomes, that's what laughter is. And of course they named the child Yitzchak, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> what happened to Yitzchak? What, what happened to him? His father offered him for a sacrifice. Right? His father brought him up on his mizbech and he, and, he, and he bound him and he took a knife in his hand and what happened? What happened? Listen, listen carefully. This is real humor. Hashem said, stop. Don't, don't touch him. Don't kill him. So what was the result? You know what happened? Yitzhak climbed off the mizbech and he went off to get married. Right? The very next parsha is how he married Rivka. <coughs> so he went through this experience of the Arcadia and he went off to get married to Rivka. You know what was left on the Mizbech? His ashes. The Medrash says, Ephroshel Yitzchak Munach Lefanai. The ashes of Yitzchak, the ashes of Isaac are piled before me. It doesn't say the ashes of the ram. It says the ashes of Yitzchak. One second. He survived or he didn't survive? He survived. He got up, he walked off and he went to get married. So what do you mean his ashes were left behind? What it means is that... What it means is that this was a human being who went through death and remained alive. That's what laughter means. It means that the death experience was the life experience. A remarkable thing, impossible thing happened. The Jewish people who began at that moment, right, the first process of transmission of one generation to the next, we are the people, we begin where the impossible ends. We begin where the impossible ends. We begin where despair ends. You know, the Arizal, the great mystical, the great Kabbalistic master, he points out that the word Yitzchak, his name, which means he shall laugh, if you break it up into its components, it spells Ketzchai, death in life. It means living the next world in this world. That's what his name means. You understand? Laughter means 
The concept of being able to laugh means seeing that the most impossible and hopeless and painful and ridiculous is the cause of the redemption itself. That, so if you can live with a vision of that while you're yet going through this, that's called, that's Ketzchai, that's living the redemption while in the exile. People of spiritual greatness, <coughs> that's what they managed to do. <coughs> they managed to live in this situation, in that, are you with me? Mendel of, there, was a, there was a great Hasidic leader who lived in Svat. I'll just give you an example of it. He lived in Svat. <coughs> great tzaddik. One day his wife came home and she said to him, the, uh, somebody, they're saying that the Mashiach has arrived. She came home and said to her husband, they say the Mashiach has arrived. Why? Because in the town of Tzfat, somebody was blowing a chauffeur. Somebody, uh, somebody got into his head, he was walking around blowing a chauffeur like the Mashiach had arrived. And people were saying the Mashiach had arrived. So when he heard this, Mendel went to the window, put his head out the window, put his head back in and he said, no, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed and he carried on learning. He knew the Mashiach hadn't arrived. The Hasidim asked the following obvious question. Why did he have to put his head out the window? Why, why, why did he put his head out the window? The answer was by him in Stub, that means where he was in the house, you couldn't tell any difference. His own environment was already there. He had to put his head into the outside world to see if that had changed. But where he, where he was, it was already that. Yeah, he was living that dimension where he was already. <coughs> that's what a Jew is isn't that what a Jew is we live in that world we live with him even though we're here we live in a Shama even though we look like a body <coughs> they say some of Hashim said when Avraham Avinu laughed you know why his laughter in a sense was greater than hers <coughs> He didn't, laugh with the happy, he didn't laugh with the happiness of anticipating the birth of a child. He laughed with the happiness of holding the child in his arms. Already. What do we say when we daven? What, do you understand where the Jewish people are? When we daven, we say, Baruch Atah Hashem Boinei Yerushalayim. Present tense. <laughs> present tense. We say, Baruch Atah Hashem. Every day we say, right? You say it in the present tense, don't you? We say, Goyel Yisrael. You redeem us now. Boinei Yerushalayim. You're building your, what are you building Yerushalayim? Have you been there? The ruins. Ah, Yerushalayim. Boina Yerushalayim means you're doing it now. What do you mean you're doing it now? Not Emunah means you live it now. That's what it means. If it's a promise of peace, it's as good as done. If you understand a promise of peace, then you live where you should be living. There's no, there's no future tense or present. It's now. What, what, were you waiting for it to happen to then be reassured that it's going to happen? That's not Emunah. You live the then, now. The next world in this world. That's what Ketzchai means. <coughs> Let's add one more layer to our... Yes, do you have energy? Let's add one more layer to this discussion and we'll close it there. Can you see that this whole discussion of process of disintegration leading to redemption... It's not only the story of the history of the Jewish people and the story of... It's also the story of every crisis, every ordeal and difficulty and crisis and final resolution or redemption from crisis. Can you see that? No? <coughs> Let's try and understand. 
What are the elements, first of all? <coughs> the elements are always difficulty. The difficulty becomes prolonged. It could be extremely prolonged. When you think you couldn't take it anymore, it goes on more. When you think you couldn't take it any more than that, it goes on a lot more. When it finally gets so bad that you know it couldn't get any worse, it gets a lot worse. And finally, when it's so bad that you know for absolutely sure you couldn't hold on for one more moment, then it's only one more moment away from being over. Of course, that's when most people give up. <coughs> Actually, there's more to it, because <coughs> if you examine it carefully, you'll see that after it gets very bad, almost always in a real crisis, there's a false illusion, there's an illusion of redemption that lets you down very badly. You know that. The Mephoshim said that before the Mashiach comes, there'll be a false messianic, false Mashiach. <coughs> Why? Can't go into details now, but the pathway is that, the, that when a thing moves towards its final, final showdown, then before it, the final crunch happens, there's, a, there's, a, there's an experience of redemption that's a much bigger disappointment than... Yeah, are you with me? What happened? I'm sure you're thinking ahead of me. Where do we learn all this from? What's the, what's the prototypal ordeal and redemption of the Jewish people? is Egypt, right? Going through Mitzrayim and being redeemed, right? Actually, we can go back before that. Remember when the brothers and Joseph... <coughs> but let's just take it for a moment. You know, when the Jews were in exile in Egypt, wasn't there a false... Now it happened at the worst moment of the crisis where they couldn't hold on anymore in the slavery. Moshe Rabbeinu arrived, Moses. And they knew who he was. He had the secret password. They knew exactly that he was the Redeemer. Can you imagine the elation? Can you imagine the experience? Moshe Rabbeinu walks into the palace. He's now going to redeem the Jewish people. So just hear this carefully. The people who don't understand this, their personal crises are unbearable. But if you understand these things, the personal crisis becomes bearable. I didn't say it becomes fun or a picnic. I didn't say that. The birth is not a picnic. But it becomes a whole different story. Moshe Rabbeinu walks into the palace to tell Paroi to let the Jewish people go. The Jews must have been dancing in the street. Can you imagine? They kept this Imuna alive for 210 years that the Redeemer would come. Okay? He comes along and he does exactly what he's supposed to do. And Moshe Rabbeinu was a cosmic, cosmic figure. There's no question who he was. So they're absolutely guaranteed that he's the Mashiach. He's redeeming them. He walks into the palace. Can you imagine? He comes out and they all gather around him and they say, What happened? He says, well, now you have to make the same amount of bricks without any straw. Talk about disappointment. Can you imagine? If that isn't a test of faith, I don't know what is. The guaranteed Mashiach, absolutely promised, and he comes out and he's made the situation a whole lot worse than it was before. Do you know what faith it takes to go through that? No, the faith it takes to go through a situation where you've just been proved wrong and worse, and you still go through that, the Mephoshim said that the final showdown when the Mashiach comes will be proofs that we're wrong and that they're right. Not a difficult experience. There'll be divine proofs that we're wrong. Divine proofs. Miraculous open revelation that we're wrong and they're right. And only if you survive that and go through that, <coughs> anyway, what happened, let, let's go back prior to the Egyptian experience. Where was the prototype of that? Let's take a few minutes together. We'll study a little bit of Chumash together. Can we do that? A little bit of Chumash. This is where we're holding now in Chumash. So as you come to read the Pasha, this week, next week, <coughs> right, this is where we're holding. Next two, three weeks. As you can learn Chumash with the children, the way I'm sure they learn it anyway in Chayda over here. But let's just make sure that we get it right. What happens with the brothers? We want to follow here a classic experience of ordeal and redemption. 
The brothers sell Joseph. That's not good. That's how these problems begin. What happens afterwards? Immediately afterwards, their world crashes. Their world collapses. They come back to their father and they tell him, and he goes into a total, he goes into a decline, he goes into a, a state of, 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 of intensity of mourning that lasts with its acute intensity for 22 years. He lost prophecy entirely. When those boys came home, those men came home, and they told him what had happened, to, they implied to him what had happened to their brother Yosef. <coughs> they watched him basically die inwardly. He lost his connection with Hashem. And it didn't get better, unlike normal mourning, that after three days, and then after seven days, and after thirty days, etc., it didn't happen. He stayed in intensity of unconsolable mourning for twenty-two years. How did they survive that? I do not know how they lived with themselves day after day, seeing what they had done to the... And they began to realize that Yosef was the chosen one of his father, who was to be the messianic... He was to be the messianic figure, he was to be the forerunner of the messianic revelation. And they had just done away with that, can you imagine? Talk about, and it didn't last for a couple of days or a couple of months. It went on and on and on. That daily proof that they had been responsible for bringing the future of the world <coughs> to a premature close. They knew they were the forerunners of the Jewish people. That the whole object was the, that from them would develop this great nation who would bring Torah to the world. And they just destroyed it. How did they survive with that? How did they carry on living with it? What happened? After all those years, did it get better? No, nope, it got a lot worse. What happened? There was a famine. The whole family is now finally, this is the end of the road. They've done something wrong. It's gotten worse. Now they're all going to die of hunger. <coughs> they fight for survival. <coughs> what do they do? <coughs> they go down to Egypt <coughs> to buy food. <coughs> who do they meet there? They don't know who it is. They see this peculiar, tormenting Egyptian who accuses them of being spies and the weirdest set of circumstances... You know, you see what's happening? What's happening is, Yosef is watching them, and he doesn't want to tell them who he is. He wants to put them in a situation, he's going to do whatever it takes to put them in a situation exactly like the one they went through 22 years before, and this time get it right. There's big stakes here, the future of the world. He knows he has the chance to correct their mistake and put the world back on track. We're talking about the history of the human race. We're talking about the history of Torah and Hashem's people. Not talking about big, big cosmic issues. How's he going to do it? Rabban says, Tshuva is only when you've been in the situation that you were once in before, and this time got it right, or at least... So what does he want to do? He wants to put them in a situation, well, engineer a situation in which Binyamin will look guilty, just like he, as a son of Rachel, had looked guilty, and they'd killed, they decided to kill him, drop him. Binyamin will be put in a situation which he'll engineer that looks exactly like he's guilty with proof. He's going to engineer it that it will look like proven that Benjamin let them down just like Yosef did. And this time, despite all the evidence, stand by him. And correct what they did all those years before. So he's going to do what, you hear what's going on? He's going to do, he wasn't just tormenting them, Shalom, to make them suffer. He was trying to get them into a situation exactly like the previous one, and this time to come through it correctly, and correct the mistake. But they don't know that. See, when you're going through an ordeal, you don't know why you're going through this. You don't understand it. <coughs> One of the unique features of these kinds of ordeals. <coughs> People say, why me? <coughs> why me? Why this? Doesn't make any sense. Do you know what he did to them? They opened their sacks and they found their money returned. What does this mean? What does this mean? They were very great people. As soon as it began, they said to each other, this is because we sold our brother. Ooh, they took the blame. 
They didn't say it's his fault and his fault and his fault. They didn't do that. They took the blame right away. But did that make the whole thing explicable to them? No. Oh, no. So what happens? They go down. He starts accusing them. <coughs> Finally says to them, okay, take food. Go home, but I want you to bring back your other brother. You say you had another brother. I want to see him. Disaster. And I'm keeping a hostage. So keep Shimon. Keep Shimon. And he sends the others back. Fine. <coughs> they go back to their father. <coughs> They're getting deeper and deeper into a mess. They eat the food. No way in the world is he going to allow Binyamin to go down again. Right? He's afraid he's going to die of grief. If he just... But in the end, what does Hashem do? There's no more food. So it's die one way or the other. You know, there wasn't any... The whole known world at the time was Egypt. It was the empire. It was the world empire. That's what it was. There wasn't Africa at the time. There wasn't this place. There wasn't anything else. That's all there was. Egypt was the entire culture. The entire <coughs> That's where it all was. <coughs> Go down there and buy us food. At the last minute, when there's basically starva- death by starvation, what else can he do, Yaakov? His heart breaks, and he sends Binyamin down. Yehuda says, look, I'll bring him back, and he promises by his own, his own life and responsibility, I'll bring him back. They go down to Mitzrayim, what happens? Listen carefully. This is plain Chumash, isn't it? Are there any teachers here? I'm sure this is the way you teach your children Chumash, no? Straightforward Chumash. They go down to Mitzrayim, and this strange tormentor says to them, what does he do? Listen carefully to the illusion of redemption. Listen to the illusion of redemption. <coughs> I see you telling the truth. Absolutely fine. Everything's fine. Here's your food. Loads them all up with food. Puts them all back. They all start traveling home. They're all together. They're all, they're all going home. They got their food. They're going home, right? Cross the border. Get to the border. Hoof beats behind them. Turn around. Who is it? They don't know who it is. It's Manasha, their nephew. They don't know that it's Yosef's son. They never met him. <laughs> he's an Egyptian. Comes after them and he says, somebody's stolen my master's goblet. They say, well, no, not us. Open all the sacks and whose do they find it? Benjamin's sack. What's Yosef doing? He's framing him up. He's framing him. He's pointing evidence against him. And he wants them all to turn around to Benjamin and say, it's your fault. Just like your brother let us down and threatened our lives, etc., you the one is responsible for all of this, and there's evidence for it. He wants them to see all that, and despite all of that, they must stand by him. Talk about a risk, what a cosmic risk. <clears throat> they do, they do, they come through. There's the sack, it's all there, the evidence is there, he's done it, he's the one who's responsible, and they stand by him. They don't know what they're going through, but they're correcting the history, they're correcting the history of the world. They're correcting a mistake they made 20 years before, but they just, they don't know what they're going through. They just, all, all they can see is a totally unbearable trail of horror and human suffering. You, got not. You, see, you, see, you see the human in the situation? Behind the scenes, their lives are being corrected. We can see that, but they can't see it. What happens? <coughs> they all go back to Mitzrayim, and the final showdown occurs. They stand facing this peculiar Egyptian, and the end of the world has arrived. The Svasi Emes makes it plain. They had no options left. They had no options left. <coughs> when Yehuda stood there with his brothers, <coughs> the Svassimus says there are only two options left to them. <coughs> One was to do what Yosef said. Yosef said, look, it's his fault. He took my thing. He stays with me. He's my prisoner and my slave. You all go back to your father. The brothers got together and they reasoned as follows. The Svassimus says like this. There were only two options. One was to leave Binyamin, like he said, and go back to Canaan. Go back to Israel. The Mephoshim say that if Yaakov would have seen them in the distance and counted them, before he even had a chance to communicate with them, just seen that Binyamin wasn't with them, he would have died of grief on the spot. Literally. 
<coughs> so one option was to go back to Eretz Yisrael and kill their father. Kill Yisrael. Like, talk about ending the world. The other option was to destroy Egypt. <coughs> they were of superhuman strength. <coughs> the major says that they, one of them threw up Yosef's table. Yosef's table was a block of solid marble and crushed it to a powder between his hands. That was superhuman strength. Yehuda called the brothers together softly and quietly and he said to them, look, if we have to fight our way out of here, you each destroy one city <coughs> and I'll destroy three. And we'll lay waste. You're talking about destroying the world. You're talking about becoming mass murderers. These people who were destined, who were supposed to become the forerunners of the Jewish people, okay, on whom the future of the world is, <coughs> had to become mass murderers and murder everybody in the culture. I mean, so it was t- they t- we're talking about a holocaust ending the world one way or the other. No options. Right? The final ordeal has occurred. The years have gone by, it's gotten worse, and they're finally about to blow out. Yehuda steps forward and he says, he says, look, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, he, he says, look, I don't know what's going on here. I know we're guilty. That's clear to us. But exactly what it all means and why all these things have happened, we haven't the faintest idea. But I just know one thing. I promised my father that I'd bring him back. And therefore, take me. Take me. The ultimate act of self-sacrifice. Take me. And that incredible and impossible moment, right, standing there, can you just imagine the scene? They hear the words, Ani Yosef. I'm Joseph. Understand what that means? Understand what that means? The moment was the least possible moment for redemption. It was the brink, the precipice itself. There was no, there's no. And from where did they hear it? The source of the problem. Talk about funny. Where did the redemption? Nobody, nobody galloped in from the wings and lifted them all out. That's not where the redemption came from. It came from the source of the problem. You know what that means? Can you see what's happening? The problem is its solution. The ordeal is its own redemption. Do you know what it says in the Kabbalistic sources? It says that in the next world, in the next world, Tama etz katama pri, the taste of the tree and the taste of the fruit is the same. In this world you have a tree, you can't eat it. You eat the fruit that comes out of the tree. <coughs> it's a process that brings out a fruit. The process you cannot use. You don't taste it. The fruit is... In the next world, you can eat the tree or the fruit. You can walk up to a tree. You know, Gun Eden is trees. Let's discuss what that means. The word etz in Hebrew is the root of etzem. It means actuality. That's what it is. I'm not talking about a childish picture. But anyway, you can walk up to the tree, and you can eat of the tree, or you can eat of the fruit. What, what does it mean? What does it mean? You know what it means? In this world, we have this world and the next. This world is process, and the next is the result. This world is the tree, and the next world is the fruit. But when you get there, you see that the process was the result. When you get there, you see... You understand? People think, people think that when you get to the next world, the happiness of the next world is, Baruch Hashem, that's all over. No, that's not the happiness. Baruch Hashem, I went through that. That's the happiness. The happiness is every moment of torment and every moment of terror that you went through in this world. That's the fruit itself. You wouldn't give up a moment. Look at those, look at those men when they stood there facing their brother. Would they now give up a moment of the horror that they went through? Would they give up a second of it now? Of course not. That was what fixed them. That's the redemption. While they were going through, they were shaking with, with torment. But now, do you understand what's happening? The birth pains that, that they were causing the pain before, they now realize were what gave the birth. They relish every moment now. Didn't feel funny when they were going through it. It wasn't fun. But every moment of pain they went through, right, that now is the result. There wouldn't have been if it hadn't been for that. 
The work is the result. It's not that the work's over, that's why you feel good. The reason you feel good when the work's over is because the work built the... You notice, of course, that in this incredibly humorous situation, they weren't laughing. They weren't laughing. Those men who'd just been through this. It doesn't say they laughed at all. The Mephoshim said they were so stunned they couldn't move. You know that? <laughs> when Yosef said, <clears throat> I need Yosef, and in that instant everything became plain. In that instant they suddenly realized the whole thing was perfect. Everything was in place. And everything had meant... They didn't burst out laughing. The Major says they were so shocked they couldn't move. He had embraced each one. He had to prove to them who he was again and again. He had to speak to them in Hebrew in Lashon Kodesh. They were stunned into total paralysis. You know why? Because when your world just turned inside out, when you just got turned from upside down to the right way up, right? In a, when you slip on that banana peel and you get fixed up that way, people are watching think it's funny, but you don't think it's funny. They just they just been through a situation of being turned inside out, outside in, inside out, just being corrected. That's what had just happened, and they couldn't stand it. And you know who they were? They were 12 of the greatest people who ever lived. And they were people who'd hardly ever made a mistake in their lives, and they just corrected that, and they couldn't stand it. How are we going to feel? <laughs> How are we going to feel? He's talking about the greatest people who ever lived, who made very, very small mistake. I mean, great mistake in their terms, in their scale. And they'd just been through a correction of that mistake, and they're standing at a moment of perfection. Right? And the shock was so great they could hardly survive. How will we feel when we turn inside out? Of course, the idea of living like a Jew, <coughs> the idea of living like a Jew, is that we try to turn ourselves inside out right now. We're quite happy to do that. We let them laugh because we look. We, we're quite happy to walk around upside down. That's exactly what we want. Because Yitzchak means he shall laugh, but not now. We're quite happy for them to laugh now. You know that thing about the last laugh? That's what we're looking for. We're looking for Yitzchak. We're looking for the last laugh. We're looking for Az Yemale Shrekpinu. But Yitzchak Leyom Acharon, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking to laugh now. That's not what Jewish history is about. This is not a place for laughing. So what we do is we turn ourselves upside down. Now, you want to live like a Jew? Want to live like a Jew should live? You turn yourself upside down. What you're trying to do is turn yourself the right way up. They're upside down. Now, the world that looks at physicality and judges physicality and grasps physicality and thinks that that's where it is and they subjugate the neshama to serve the body. That's immorality. To take the holiness of a human neshama and make it serve the lowliness of the animal, the body, and that's the way they think the world should function. That's what they expose. <clears throat> And that's what they educate their little children. Have you, there's a statue around here someplace. Have you seen it driven past this place? <clears throat> they only drove into the wall the first time. <laughs> they take the neshama and they make it serve the body. And that's what they call beauty. <laughs> they put up pictures of it and that's what they call... That's what they're doing. We're quite happy to be called upside down. We want them to laugh at us, it's fine. We walk around upside down. But when the whole thing gets turned upside down, we turn out to be the right way up. That'll be the, what they call the last laugh. That's what, we, that's what we're looking for. That's Azimale Shrekpin. And therefore the concept of laughter, Shrek, is the concept of the ridiculous juxtaposition of opposites, the correction of the inversion, if you like, of situations. That's what real laughter is.
the manifestation of it in the emotions in this world is a simple experience of, of pleasure and of laughter. That's what it is here. An expression of the breath, which is an expression of life, of joy. That's what it is. But at a much deeper level, of course, everything in the physical world is teaching us about the spiritual. And therefore, we are looking to learn about that massive transition, which is what really proves that death leads to life. That's what we are looking to grasp from this whole experience. We don't expect to be able to laugh now. We do expect to be able to bear the pain now, because we know what's being built. And therefore, that's what we keep thinking of, and although our mouths now may not be entirely filled with laughter, we keep before us always that concept of azimah